So John 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 22. This is God's holy and infallible word. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. And from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. That's God's word for us this evening. So our focus is on what Pilate says in verse 5 tonight. Here is the man. And that phrase, Pilate saying that, has captured the church's imagination throughout the centuries. An older translation said, Behold the man. In the Middle Ages, this scene was often depicted in Christian art, and it was referred to with the Latin phrase, Eka homo, which means, Behold the man. And in these paintings, Jesus is shown suffering, He's shown after he was flogged, wearing that mocking robe and the crown of thorns, standing next to Pilate. The artists created these paintings so that people who saw the paintings would behold the man. 
and, and meditate on Jesus' suffering and meditate on his journey to the cross for the salvation of his people, it seems that Pilate called the people to look at Jesus so that they would leave him be. Pilate didn't want them to kill Jesus. In verse 4 and another verse, he tells the people that he finds no basis for a charge against him. We think that probably Pilate had Jesus flogged so the people might take that as punishment enough and then leave Jesus be. And now, weakened from those beatings, crown of thorns, purple robe to make fun of him, Jesus would have looked very, very pathetic. And it's like Pilate is saying, see this man and how pitiful he looks. Do you really think he's a threat to you or, or, or to your power? Come on. What could this man do? Look at him. What could he do? And we know the crowd's response. They persist in wanting Jesus dead. But in Pilate's invitation, he meant it a certain way, but I believe in that there is an invitation to us in a way like those Christian artists saw in this, an invitation to believers. An invitation to us to behold the man just as John invited us to behold the Lamb of God at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Remember that? Now, again, we're being called to behold the man here. And, and, and that's, that's what I want us to do for just a bit together tonight. As I use that phrase, behold the man, I want you to please realize that I'm not inviting us to behold someone who is only a man. Jesus is fully man, but also fully God. Son of man, maybe to us, in the way I think about it, son of man, that's maybe not one of the greatest titles of Jesus or one of the most exalted. But actually, in the Bible, if you look at it, son of man is actually one of his most exalted titles. For us, and actually for me too personally, son of God that sounds more exalted, more dignified, because Jesus is God, not man. But the history of the title, Son of Man, goes back to the book of Daniel, and then it moves all the way to Revelation. It gives us a vision at the end of time, and it gets at Jesus' exaltation and divinity and glory. So I'm just saying that because I don't want you to get tripped up by behold the man. Think man as in the ultimate person who ever lived, the only man who is also fully God, the only man maybe who's capital M man. And we're called to behold the man tonight in a culture that is filled with behold the man moments. We just love to behold the man. We do it all the time. There are all these award shows. It seems like there are more than ever before. The Academy Awards, the Golden Globes, People's Choice Awards, the Emmys. I don't even know what they all are. There's probably ones. I don't know what each one of those are. There's one of them that's also the Oscars. I, I don't know. We have a best 
actor and a leading actress award. And then when the winner comes forward, maybe it's Denzel Washington. He's a pretty cool guy. Leonardo DiCaprio dressed in a tuxedo, glistening white Hollywood teeth, impeccable hair, beautiful smile, charming, witty. And we behold the man. And we're mesmerized. Oh, he's so cool. Tom Hanks, what a guy. And not only the winner who comes up to the mic and makes his charming speech after getting his cool trophy, but we behold each one of the nominees who are presented in a video montage from their latest films. We behold each one of them. And we behold them on the red carpet before the award shows. And let's not forget the women. We behold them too. Their amazing dresses on the nights of the award show, what they did with their hair, their shoes, the accessories, those beautiful smiles, and don't forget the glistening white Hollywood teeth. We love to behold these men and women. And that's just the actors. I haven't even begun to talk about the musicians and the bands that we behold for what they do. And our athletes, not just the paid professionals, but even the young heroes of March Madness, we spend hours upon hours of our life beholding men and women, admiring them, fascinated by them. Entire industries are created around beholding the man. And some of us think we're a little deeper than that, than beholding celebrities, and we more admire great men and women of history, like Abraham Lincoln and Gandhi and Isaac Newton and Nelson Mandela and Aristotle. And, and really, history and our modern-day men have created men and women to behold. Human history shows us people of incredible talents and skills and minds, and there have been great people. They're worthy of our respect and admiration to a certain extent. But, but here, the Bible gives us, and is giving you tonight, the only one truly, truly worth beholding. He deserves our everlasting gaze and admiration and worship who he is and what he did, and the eternal significance of all, all of that makes everything else that we see in great people amount to very, very little by comparison. God's word invites us to behold this man tonight for a number of reasons that put him head and shoulders above all others. And my prayer is that he would receive your focus in your life in a way that no other person ever, ever will. What is it about him that's worth beholding compared to all other people we could behold in our lives? That's what I want to talk about. First of all, no one so innocent has been declared guilty so unjustly. That's what we see in our text, first of all. As good as the American justice system is, historically, compared to other countries, we've begun to see cracks in the system, injustice in the justice system, where people in our land with lots of money have a clear advantage in our system over the poor or people who just aren't quite as rich, where 
DNA evidence in recent years has, have proven that we sometimes lock up. We have locked up innocent men for decades, and the real killer runs free. Rome was famous for its justice system, but it doesn't work here in our text. In verse 16, we read that Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified, though in verse 4, he found no charge against him. In case we wonder about that, Scripture testifies to Jesus' complete innocence again and again and again. Judas, the betrayer, says in Matthew 27.4, I have sinned and I have betrayed innocent blood. Herod found him innocent. Pilate said about Herod's conclusion, he sent, Herod sent them back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. The dying thief said, we're getting what we deserve, but this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. The centurion says in Luke 23, surely this was a righteous man. That Jesus was completely innocent was the verdict of every person who examined Jesus, every person who tried him, every friend or enemy of Jesus, anyone who saw him up close said he was innocent. He was totally innocent of what the crowds wanted to kill him for. Now, many men and women have been innocent of crime in our legal system. Probably not tons of us here have committed an actual crime. So we're innocent in that sense. But Jesus was not only innocent of a crime, unlike anyone who ever lived, he was innocent of anything. He was innocent of any sin. Romans says, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But that's talking about everybody except for Jesus. Because Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus was tempted like us, but he was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that Jesus knew no sin, and yet the innocent one was punished. Why did that happen? Why this great injustice? Well, it's for you, and it's for me. Our guilt deserves God's punishment. The innocent one this man, Jesus, was punished so that all of us guilty ones could go free. Something else about this man, Jesus. Secondly, no one has shown such courage in the face of such suffering. Many people have been tortured in the history of the world, but no one went through it with the perfect and sinless courage of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 tells us that Pilate had Jesus flogged. John doesn't go into the details, but the people he first wrote to would have known something about Roman flogging, and we're told that it meant removing the person's clothes, tying the person to a post to fully expose their back, and then striking them with a long leather belt and in that belt, sharp pieces of lead and bone and rock were inserted. 
and that would tear the back into strips. They say very few people remained conscious throughout that ordeal, and some people died from that alone. Jesus bore this, and he was still standing afterwards when Pilate displays him. Earlier in chapter 18, we read that Jesus was struck in the face. They struck him in the face again in verse 3. Micah tells us that he was struck with a rod in the face. We see Jesus keep his dignity through all of this with calm, collected, peaceful responses to the questions. Not only can we see that he kept his courage on the outside, but we know there would not have been a single evil thought in his mind against those who were doing this because he remained sinless, even here. In fact, later on the cross, we're told in Luke that he prayed, Father, forgive them. And then we think of ourselves and our lack of courage under trial. We thought about that when we talked about Peter crumbling and denying Jesus three times in chapter 18. And if Peter is exhibit A in weakness under trial and in suffering, we got to admit that we're exhibits B through Z. We can thank the Lord that he stood firm in our place. And he received this torture. Why again? So that we would never have to be tortured by the wrath of God. We deserve an eternal flogging because of our sin. And we don't get it. Because Jesus was tortured for us. Behold the man. No one has ever displayed such strength and courage in the face of such unimaginable suffering. And then finally tonight, no one has shown such majesty in spite of such humiliation. In addition to the physical mistreatment, they mocked Jesus. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on the king's head. They, they put on a kingly robe to humiliate Jesus. Now, I'm using the word majesty because Pilate uses that type of language. In verse 14, he says, here is your king. He wrote the king of the Jews on the cross. He meant it mockingly, but the fact is he was revealing the truth, wasn't he? Jesus was king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it would become very clearly revealed when he rose from the dead ascended into heaven, was seated at the right hand of God. He was and is the Son of God, and as such had all divine power, though he was choosing to set it aside here to accomplish the work of salvation. The only words that we have from Jesus in our verses tonight, they reveal his sovereign majesty. Jesus says in response to Pilate's question, about the fact that he has the power either to free Jesus or crucify him. Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. And this is especially showing us that God's will would be done here. God's power over the situation 
would be greater than man's power. Through his sovereign power, God would accomplish what he intended to through instruments like Pilate. Pilate thought Jesus was innocent. He said it multiple times. But it was God's will that Jesus would be found guilty here so that we would be saved. Whose will won out in the situation? Pilate's? No. God's. And so in the end, Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. In his divine nature, Jesus, even here, continued to be powerfully and sovereignly guiding events to accomplish the divine plan for the glory of God and for our good. And you and I can trust that the power of God from above, which worked this most terrible event for the greatest good in the history of the world, continues to be at work in our lives today too. For our good, for our salvation, for our spiritual growth, overriding the schemes and plans of man, overriding our trials, overriding our struggles. So that's the invitation tonight, to behold the man, innocent, courageous, majestic, King of kings and Lord of lords. We're invited to worship at his feet. We're invited to keep him always before us, keep him in our hearts, assuring us of our salvation and keeping him before us as our only guide to living life until the Son of Man returns on the clouds and we'll behold him then. We'll behold him finally face to face in glory and worship him forever.